Funding for Smart Talk is provided by Capital Blue Cross. For 80 years, Capital Blue Cross has offered products that provide peace of mind and promote good health. Focused on creating a healthier future for our communities through innovations like its Capital Blue Health and Wellness Centers that provide in-person service and inspire healthy living. Capital Blue Cross is behind you for whatever lies ahead. More information is at capbluecross.com. Capital Blue Cross. Live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by Pinnacle Health Spine Institute, part of UPMC Pinnacle, offering a complete range of services to diagnose and treat your spine condition. More information is available at upmcpinnacle.com spine. Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. More than 63,000 nonprofit organizations operate in Pennsylvania. Nearly a quarter of a million Pennsylvanians work in the nonprofit sector, almost 15% of the state's workforce. These entities register as 501c3 organizations, exempting them from federal tax. Proposals within the tax reform bill that is uh, being debated in Washington would limit the number of people who could deduct charitable contributions from their taxes. It would also end, or at least the Senate part of the bill, would end the Affordable Care Act's individual mandate, which would remove health care coverage from a projected 13 million Americans, according to the Congressional Budget Office, and allow nonprofit organizations to endorse political candidates. We're going to talk about the impact of uh, the tax reform bill that has passed both the House and Senate now, and we'll go into a conference committee with Ann Ginrich, who is executive director of the Pennsylvania Association of Nonprofit Organizations. Ann Ginrich, welcome back to the program. Thanks for having me, Scott. If you have a question or a comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532, or send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. I know you may have uh, some thoughts on the tax reform bill, but if you could restrict uh, your, your thoughts to uh, nonprofits and how some of those organizations will be impacted. Uh, give uh, you know the, you do that when you give us a call one eight hundred seven two nine seven five three two. All right, and you you opposed the tax bills that uh, passed the House last month and the Senate last week. Why? There are a number of issues that will impact and have negative consequences on nonprofit organization, and each of those in, uh, issues taken by itself has potential for damage, but the combination of all of them make it particularly devastating, we believe. So we started out by focusing on three critical issues. And when I say we, I mean PANO or the Pennsylvania Association of Nonprofit Organizations. And we have, through this uh, budget cycle with the federal government, have partnered more and more with our fellow state associations and the National Council of Nonprofits in looking at these particular issues. And as we across the nation began to look at whether or not we would get these three critical issues passed, we realized that even if we got all of those three issues, that there were a number of other issues that would negatively impact the sector. So at the end of the day, we ended up opposing them both. All right. Well, let's talk about the three. Start off with the the three main uh, parts of uh, the tax reform bill that you oppose. Great. So the first one that we oppose is the negative impact that this tax reform bill would have on charitable tax deductions. So what are charitable tax deductions? Essentially, it means that if you, Scott, would write a check to, say, PANO, which is a nonprofit organization with a 501c3 status, for the purposes of supporting our work, you could um, itemize that on your as credit towards your tax bill at the end of the year. And many, many, many organizations depend on those charitable donations to work. Um, What comes to mind as I think about this is when we started lobbying on this issue back in February, we went to Washington, D.C. with a number of nonprofits from Pennsylvania, and they included a mission from Philadelphia that serves breakfast and lunch and dinner and provides shelter to the homeless to the Pittsburgh Ballet Theater. Both organizations depend on charitable donations. Charitable dollars literally mean bread and butter for those that come to the mission, literally. They also mean the lessons that are given to underserved people who may not have access to ballet in Pittsburgh. So we are um, making, wanting to make sure that this charitable tax deduction stays in the bill, and at this point, it has not. Okay, explain that a little bit more, yeah. because... 
one of first of all let me just backtrack for a moment uh, president trump has corrected many people uh, in the media when he talks talk about tax reform he said a couple of times last week that this is not tax reform it is a tax cut bill and the the, the basic way in which the bill does that uh, and there still is some debate about who gets a tax cut who doesn't uh, but anyway, the, the basic way that it does that is by doubling the size of the standard deduction. And that's where you see the estimates of there would be fewer people who would be making contributions, correct? That is correct. In what way? So to your point, people will perhaps more of their income may be protected from taxes because of increasing the standard deduction. But with that increase of deduction... By increasing the standard deduction, fewer people will be able to itemize their charitable deductions on their taxes. So currently, 30% of Americans itemize their charitable deductions at the end of the year. That number will go down to 5% of all income earners, and not the bottom 5%, but the upper, the top 5% of American earners. So what that means is 95% of all Americans will have no economic incentive to give to charity. So just to, to clarify here, they still can give to charity. It's just that you're saying they wouldn't have the incentive because they wouldn't be itemizing their deductions. Right. So what we say is people will give to charity because they care. So they'll continue to give to charity. People give more to charity because of having that tax incentive. So the estimates from the Joint Committee on Taxation are that $13 billion will be reduced to charities as a result of this tax bill. Now, that's from the figures that I've seen, uh, that there was like $282 billion that uh, was, and I don't know what year this is from, but uh, is it was from last year? Or it was from last year. Last year, mm-hmm. $282 billion uh, contributed to, uh, to, to nonprofits in the United States last year, and this would mean a loss of $13 billion. Okay, $13 billion is a lot of money, but... In when you put it side by side with two hundred eighty two billion, it doesn't sound like that big of a chunk being taken away. And in fact it is only and I put that in quotes for those who can't see me, it's only five percent of the total amount. But I said at the beginning of this that it's not just this um reduction in charitable giving that makes a difference to nonprofits. It's also other things in the tax bill that all put together will create some pretty devastating circumstances. Mm-hmm. All right, so let's talk about some of those other things. You said th- there were three main parts of this that you opposed. Let's go to number two. Number two is the repeal of the Affordable Care Act's individual mandate, which did end up in the Senate bill. And we know at this point that it was not in the House bill. We don't know what's going to happen with that when it goes to conference. What happens with the repeal of the individual mandate is that, um, according to the Congressional Budget Office, it will leave 13 million people uninsured and also increase premium amounts for the rest of us. But what's critical for the nonprofit community is that those 13 million people and others who may not be able to afford their health care and also other daily living expenses will now turn to the nonprofit community, which will also be experiencing a reduction in income due to the decrease in charitable donations. So there will be more people who will be in need of your services at a time when there will be that you're forecasting there will be uh, less money being given to nonprofits. That is correct. Mm-hmm. And this adds to, in, in 2015, the Nonprofit Finance Fund released a survey that showed that 79% of nonprofits were reporting an increase in demand for services, but only 50, 50% of them were able to meet that demand. So if the demand for services goes up, that creates additional pressure on the nonprofit community to meet the needs of the people who go to the mission in Philadelphia or the ballet theater in Pittsburgh. All right. Well, let me take a, another step back. How? What kind of services do nonprofits offer uh, that would make up for the services that people who uh, would lose their their insurance? What what kind of uh, services are offered? So nonprofits um, offer. Um, they they serve the uninsured folks through. Uh, through the healthcare systems that we have um, available, 
Um, and in addition to that, when so there's the health care that we provide in the nonprofit community through the hospitals that we have, the clinics that we have out in the communities. And then in addition to that, when people can't pay, they have to make a, de- a decision between paying for health care and paying for food. We also have the food banks available that can help provide for those ba- basic needs. Those are a couple examples. So you're saying there would be a ripple effect if those people lose their health insurance. Now, that, that estimate, um, just so that we're providing a background on it, of 13 million people losing their insurance, that's over a 10-year period. That's over a 10-year period. Over a 10-year period. Uh, I'm curious, and I don't know whether you can answer this or not, but I'll ask the question. Before the Affordable Care Act came along, um, this was you know six years, six, seven years ago, uh, when people first started getting on the health care exchanges and, and were able to ob- obtain insurance. Uh, did you see or do your members see a need for their services decrease as people became, you know, insured, were able to get insurance? That's a really great question, and I can't answer that. What I can tell you is that currently, right now, there are 11 percent of the population is uninsured. And that is estimated to go up to 16% of the population as a result of this bill. Not even anecdotally, you've uh, the, the, you've heard that there was a reduction uh, in the need for services when the ACA came along? I personally haven't heard that. I, would, I could check with my staff to see if other people heard that. Mm-hmm. By the way, we are talking with Ann Ginrich, who is the executive director of the Pennsylvania Association Nonprofit Organizations, about the tax reform bill that uh, passed the House last month and Friday or I guess it was early Saturday morning, passed uh, the Senate, now goes to a conference committee for negotiators to come up with a, a compromise on the on the two bills, and then apparently it will go on to President Trump for his signature. If you have a question or a comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532, or send an email to smarttalk at org. All right, the third part of uh, your opposition to the bill, the repeal of the Johnson Act. What is the Johnson Act, and how would nonprofits be impacted by that? So the Johnson Amendment is a provision in the U.S. tax code, and it seems like a little bit of an odd provision, but it was put there in 1954 by the then-Senator Lyndon B. Johnson, who we know now as president. Um, And basically what this does is it prohibits people Um, from either opposing or supporting a particular candidate, Uh, not specifically people. It it, uh, prohibits nonprofits, 501c3s particularly, from endorsing candidates either for or against them. And it's not just uh, nonprofits, also religious organizations as well. So in this day when... Uh, you know, the, the Supreme Court has ruled that uh, corporations have a political voice. Uh, why not uh, nonprofits? Why wouldn't you want to be able to endorse candidates or take a position on uh, political issues? Broadly speaking, the reason why we don't want to take um, to elect particular candidates from our from our offices is because we we operate in a nonpartisan or neutral territory. So people who are Republicans, people who are Democrats, people who vote for independents can come to the boardroom and nonprofits and focus on the issue at hand rather than focusing on which political candidate we may or may not endorse. I'm picturing our boardroom if people would come to it and have to make a decision about which candidate we're going to stand behind. Um, I think the other – well, not I think. The other thing that happens with this uh, prohibition is that if once it's taken away – Political contributions can then flow through 501c3s, and for the first time in American history, we will end up with tax, being able to tax deduct for political contributions. Um, the Joint Commission, um, the Joint Commission estimates that this will actually be a lost revenue to the U.S. Treasury of. $2.1 billion over six years. Mm-hmm. But I want to get back to what, what you were uh, describing earlier ab- about that. I, I, I could see the real potential for nonprofits either losing a lot of money or gaining a lot of money depending on who you endorse as a candidate or the political stand you take on an issue. That is correct. And I will talk specifically about people in Pennsylvania. So even before this issue became known to constituents, Pano did a survey of our members and beyond um, whether or not they would oppose a a repeal of the Johnson Amendment or or not. 
84%, this was back in May, 84% opposed repeal. And these are the reasons they gave us. So I'm talking about Pennsylvanians, talking to Pennsylvanians. They really believe that maintaining neutrality is really critical to nonprofit integrity. So that concept of nonpartisan discussion in the boardroom and among constituents is really important to them. They also believed that it enforces the separation of church and state. As you said, many religious, I shouldn't say many, some religious folks wanted to have this repealed so they could have uh, greater freedom of speech. And then the third top reason was they really didn't want dollars coming through their organizations to fund political campaigns. Mm. You know, there are, even though there is this ban on um, taking political stands, we do know that there are uh, people who view some organizations as having uh, a political stand to begin with. Mm -hmm. Um, They won't donate to those organizations or their organizations that they see as you know that they are consistent with their own political beliefs and don't donate to them now i don't know we're in a this country has a very partisan divided outlook on a lot of issues today this would just seem to be very chaotic if how many organizations do you represent 916 916 mm-hmm. organizations and that maybe there's 916 different opinions on something Absolutely. We have people who fall on both sides of either Democrat or Republican. So again, even just from Pano's perspective, what would it look like if at some point we would endorse either a Democrat or a Republican candidate? Suddenly we end up having these Republican and or Democratic nonprofit organizations. It doesn't make any sense to me. But why not just say, continue to say we're nonpartisan, we don't, because there are organizations that do that now, uh, maybe not nonprofits, but say that uh, we are a nonpartisan organization, we won't endorse candidates, we won't take a position on, uh, on uh, policy. Well, I mean, I think the thing that we fall back on at the end of the day, if people really push us, is we're not allowed to legally stand for a political candidate one way or the other. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Smart Talk is supported by Capital Blue Cross, providing health care coverage accepted by doctors and specialists in all 50 states. More information is available at capbluecross.com. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by UPMC Pinnacle, who is studying a new surgical technique that allows surgeons to make repairs to the heart without having to open the chest cavity and while the heart is beating. Info at upmcpinnacle.com. Welcome back to Smart Talk. We're speaking with Ann Gindrich, who is the executive director of the Pennsylvania Association of Nonprofit Organizations, about the impact that the tax reform bill in Washington would have on nonprofit organizations here in Pennsylvania and across the country. If you have a question or a comment you'd like to add, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at org. You can leave a question or a comment on WITF's Facebook page page. On Twitter, we are at SmartTalkWITF. Again, that phone number, 1-800-729-7532. Let's go to John in Harrisburg. John, you're on the air. Hi. Um, my, my question kind of goes to along the lines. If you have, uh, and there's more than just 51C3. There's C4, C7. There's, there's a whole gamut of it, and they're all regulated by the IRS. But some of those organizations, such as C3s and C4s, have charitable tax deductions on that line. That's basically the government condoning and saying, hey, there's a useful use for this because the government's actually using taxable income, especially on C3s. They have an impact on local municipalities because the property taxes are tax-exempt often along that line. That being said, how can you have an actual, uh, say, like we were talking about health care, and the, the person you have on the air was talking about, hey, you know, uh, the, the taxable income we have, we're, we're, doing, we're providing health care towards people, that's not necessarily the case. There is no rhyme or reason to how nonprofits, especially in the healthcare industry, are actually providing those services. There's no coordination between different nonprofits along that line. And to make matters worse, the vast majority of hospitals just 20 years ago were for-profit institutions, and they're now nonprofits. And why they made that switch is because they could actually have more money that they could build more institutions and actually build out their organizations. You can look at local uh, nonprofits on that line, uh, such as Pinnacle Health, as far as how they've been uh, building out their services on that line. So the question is, if they're not providing those health care services towards the people, but they're building out the services they're using 
but those services aren't being used, how can the government subsidize that unorganized amount? Because it's taxable money that's being lost. Mm-hmm. Hey, John, thank you very much for your call. And there's a lot there. So I'm going to respond first to the uh, nonprofits don't coordinate services amongst themselves. And I think sometimes that is true. So I don't, I'm not going to say that that collaboration always happens or happens well. Um, I am going to use um, a fairly local example of uh, Lancaster General Health, which has merged with Penn Medicine. But one of the um, services, nonprofits that they collaborate with is the Southeast Lancaster Health Services. And um, what they do is the hospital coordinates all of the services for the uninsured with that other nonprofit organization to ensure that people who don't have access to health care now do. Um, in terms of taxable income and the history of when hospitals ended up being tax exempt, I don't actually have that history in front of me. I do know that hospitals provide so many other services to the community, and they do so because they are required to do so because they are tax exempt. And that's one of the conditions of being exempt from taxes. So I, I, I have to admit that uh, uh, when I, uh, when, you know, I think there's some clarification needed, I have to admit that I was thinking about this uh, as we're talking about nonprofits. Um, you know, many of us right away think about the, the charitable organizations that help to feed people, uh, provide shelter, uh, safety, health, things like that. Uh, but what about nonprofits like hospitals, insurance companies? Um, you know, those are some large nonprofits, although people there are sometimes people would criticize them for having too much of a surplus, making too much of a profit, even though they're designated as a nonprofit. Under this bill, how would some of those nonprofits be impacted? Do you know? I don't know. The bill was just passed at 2 o'clock on Saturday morning. So without being able to talk more specifically with those larger organizations, I'm not sure how this bill would impact them. Do you have members who are uh, hospitals? or We have a couple of hospitals, yes. Uh, insurance companies? Not an insurance company at this point, no. Okay. All right, let's go to Kevin in Hershey. Kevin, you're on the air. Hey, thanks for taking my call. Yes, um, welcome. I want to respond to two things you were just talking about before the break. You had asked... Um, if the need for services, if she saw that the need for services had dropped after the ACA Act was passed. And I would say if the statistics show that they have, that would be because the deductibles have gone through the roof since the ACA was passed. It's, so you're paying thousands of dollars just to have the insurance, and you have to pay now thousands of dollars before you can even use the insurance. So what's happening is people don't go to the doctor for the services because they can't afford it. And secondly, you had suggested that the uninsured was going to go from $11 million to $16 million because of the new tax bill that was passed. However, I think this tax bill gives uh, people the option as to whether they want the insurance or not which would be the result for possibly the increase of the uninsured. I don't think this tax bill is forcing anybody off of their insurance plans. All right. Thank you very much for your call. The points he makes are are accurate in that, uh, yes, that estimate from the Congressional Budget Office uh, is that it's not saying to people, okay, you're no longer eligible. It is saying that if there's not an individual mandate, which has been one of the most controversial aspects of the Affordable Care Act or Obamacare from the very beginning, mm-hmm. that people are required to get health insurance, that there would be that many more people would voluntarily not go to, would not seek insurance. Plus, as you also suggested, that the premiums would go up, so there would be people who would not be able to afford it, correct? That is correct. Okay. I do want to say one thing. He he said, the caller just said that I was talking about 11, it would go from 11 million people to 16 million people. That was actually 11% of Americans to 16% of Americans not being insured. Okay. All right. So one point, and, and I think our last caller kind of touched on this in a way, if you read between the lines, uh, that 
with more people say that, uh, and again, there is some debate as to whether this actually is a tax cut uh, in the long run. I think right the first few years it's been shown that uh, for most people it would be a tax cut. There is some controversy, some question about whether in the long run it is. But at the same time, if people are able to take home more money uh, from their paychecks, isn't there the potential that uh, those people would donate more money to nonprofit organizations. There is always a potential, and that's what we would hope. Um, the idea behind the charitable tax deduction, which is what we're back to, is that there would no longer be that economic incentive to give. Mm -hmm. And let's face it, that is a big incentive uh, for many people because I'm sure it's one of the first questions that many people will ask. This is tax deductible, right? Or any time that there is uh, some kind of cause that is promoted, uh, it's always mentioned that, uh, you know, this is something that is tax deductible. Uh, but for who? I mean, I guess that goes back to the question of who in America donates to uh, to nonprofit organizations? So guess what? I have an answer to, for you specifically <laughs> from Pennsylvania. So in, um, in 2014, which is where I have the most recent number, 1.4 million Pennsylvanian tax filers itemized charitable deductions. Okay, so that's the number we start with. Of that 1.4 million, 256,000 or 18% were filers with an adjusted gross income of less than $50,000. So people from all incomes dig into their pockets, give because they care. And we, I just, I don't want to emphasize it enough that people do give because they care. Um, it is those small um, givers that will no longer be able to itemize this on their taxes. And, you know, a lot of times I think that uh, people make the mistake of, of believing that only high-income earners uh, are, are donating. I shouldn't say only, that the majority is given by high-income donors because we hear stories about, uh, you know, so-and-so uh, donated a million dollars toward their, their college or university mm -hmm. or, you know, some other uh, charitable organization. So what is, the, I don't know whether you can give me the breakdown, but as far as well-to-do earners versus, uh, you mentioned that the, a great, there are a, a lot of people who are making under $50,000. Those numbers, I would have to get back to you on the, like how many of, of Pennsylvanians would be in the bigger earner category. But what I do know is that 18% are of this in the smaller incomes. Mm -hmm. All right, let's take a phone call now from Jim in Enola. Jim, you're on the air. Hi, Scott. Hi, Jim. I agree generally with your uh, guess about the the problems with uh, the, uh, the 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 new tax act and its effect on on nonprofits. But I want to focus on something that I think was snuck in uh, through the back door: the Johnson Amendment. Uh, the Johnson Amendment is a really good idea. It was it was uh, passed, as your guest said, uh, uh, by uh, then Senator uh, Lyndon Johnson with bipartisan support over 60 years ago, and it really was a good idea because it essentially set up a deal for nonprofits. You uh, w your contributions will be tax free if you agree to not endorse political candidates, to somewhat stay out of the political sphere. I think that's worked very well. Uh, I think there, there are going to be an awful lot of unintended consequences if we allow 501c3 charities to be back in the political sphere of uh, endorsing political candidates. Uh, I, I think people are going to trust their charities less, number one. Number two, I think a lot of sort of scam 501c3 charities are going to be set up solely for the purpose of uh, endorsing this candidate or that candidate. Number three, do, do we really want people in the church pews, or I mean preachers in the church pews on Sunday morning saying, uh, you know, God is telling you to vote for this person and to vote against that person? Uh, we've had a pretty good system for 60 years, and I just think this uh, is, is a really bad idea. Thank all you. All right, Jim, thanks for your call. Yeah. Great. I don't have to add much to that, but I actually want to. So one of the things that um, we have done, and this is, the Johnson Amendment is something that we have worked very closely with the National Council of Nonprofits on. And what I can tell you in response to the caller's comments about um, the church community is that across the country, over 100 denominations do not support the repeal. Um, over 4,000 religious leaders do not support the repeal. 
89% of evangelical pastors do not support the repeal. So even though the church community has been touted as, oh, we want to have this, at the end of the day, they actually don't. Um, and I think the other broader number is that 72% of American voters don't want to see this um, amendment repealed. Let's take a call from Bill in Lancaster. Bill, you're on the air. Good morning, Scott. Hi, Bill. Uh, I have a comment, and I'd like to get an answer to it, but uh, my wife and I, uh, we give to charities that we want to give to. And unfortunately, what I've noticed is that you give to a charity or two, and all of a sudden, three times a week, you're getting solicitations from every charity, some of which are bogus or not well-managed, because they sell your name. And I think that is unconscionable to have somebody that's giving something away and all of a sudden to be pandered to by anybody and everybody. Thank you for your call, Bill. I actually very much agree with you, Bill. So when you are a donor, you have a right to privacy. And if that has happened, I encourage you to call the organization to whom you gave a contribution, confirm that that's what happened, and let them know that you don't support that that or perhaps even your contributions anymore. How can you tell? I mean, who's, who gave your information out? Well, what Bill was saying is that when he, when he and his wife give, then that organization must have sold his name because it's after that gift that he gets other, other solicitations, essentially, from other nonprofits. But we do really believe in the Donors' Bill's Bill of Rights, and that includes the right to privacy. Mm-hmm. All right. So we only have a minute or so left, Anne. Uh, I want to thank you for being on the program today. So where do you go with this? As we said, this uh, the tax bill has moved pretty quickly. The House passed it last month. The Senate passed it early Saturday morning. Uh, this conference committee will be working, and I don't know, there's a possibility that it could be on President Trump's desk by the end of this week. What are nonprofit organizations doing? Well, what PANO is doing and what the Pennsylvania Association of Nonprofits is doing is we are going to continue to oppose uh, these bills and to call our congressional representatives. We highly recommend that nonprofits and individuals who agree with us do the same. And if you don't agree with us, call anyway and tell your representative what it is that you want in the tax reform bill. Mm-hmm. Ann Ginrich is the executive director of the Pennsylvania Association of Nonprofit Organizations. And thank you very much for being with us today. Thanks so much for having me. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. The Pennsylvania Board of Education released a report last month indicating 93% of Pennsylvania schools are including Holocaust education in their curriculum. The state's General Assembly passed Act 70 in 2014, encouraging the teaching of Nazi genocide of Jews, homosexuals, the disabled, and ethnic minorities during World War II. Joining us on the line to discuss Holocaust education in Pennsylvania schools are Randy Boyette, the Anti-Defamation League of Philadelphia's Associate Regional Director of Education, and Elaine Colbert, a member of the Act 70 Advisory Committee and the daughter of a Holocaust survivor. Ms. Colbert, Ms. Boyette, welcome to the program. Thanks so much. If you have a question or a comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532, or send an email to smarttalk at org. I have to admit that uh, I remember, uh, oh, it was four years ago now, that uh, I actually looked back through my records of having this discussion on our program about the need for uh, increasing the amount of uh, Holocaust education in Pennsylvania schools. And when there's 93% of schools that are including it in their curriculums, it says that the Act 70 has been largely successful. But I'll start with a broad question. Uh, Randy Boyette, why is Holocaust education important in Pennsylvania? Holocaust education is important because it is a way for students to understand broader questions about what it means to be an informed citizen, to use critical thinking, to think about the kind of person they want to be. We want to inspire students to not think about what they might have done in those circumstances, but actually to think about challenging bias and bigotry right now in the lives that they lead. So there's that connection that um, studying history gives us to, in some ways, I would call a character education. 
But, you know, you, you use the word history. Wasn't the Holocaust being taught as part of history courses anyway? Uh, this is Elaine speaking, and I'm going to take that question. Sure. The Holocaust was mentioned in textbooks along with World War II, but not in a way that allowed people to explore the issue. So what we are saying is that there were really two wars being fought during that time, World War II and the war against the Jews, which was an entirely different kind of movement. Hmm. So, you know, I, I, and quite frankly, I have to say that uh, I, I don't know how you would teach World War II history without talking about the Holocaust. Uh, but so kind of run me through this, the, the curriculums that uh, Pennsylvania schools have added, or maybe some didn't even have to add it, but uh, some of the, what, what they're talking about now that they weren't talking about before. Well, so this is Elaine again speaking. Um, I think the difference is that when you teach World War II, you teach a chronology, you focus on military battles, you focus on leadership from generals, presidents of countries. Um, when you teach about the Holocaust, what we ask teachers to focus on now is what was the life of the individual person who was undergoing this kind of persecution? And how did that, how, how can we extrapolate from that lessons to be learned about the way people should treat one another? And, of course, many people w would ask uh, if, you know, it's not just a history, and they would ask about uh, why this is relevant today. Obviously, the Holocaust, if we could call it an event, one of the most important events of all time, but uh, of why it is, is relevant today and if there are parallels to today. Randy, what about that? Well, from my perspective, I think one of the big heartbreaks that came after the Holocaust was that everybody said, that's it, no more, no more Holocaust-like events. And there's been multiple genocides since the Holocaust. So to, I think, to explore the dynamic of why genocides continue to occur when everybody saw what had happened, you know, during World War II, through the Holocaust dynamic, I think that's a big issue. The other, the other reason is, is that, frankly, hate in our time has gotten very extreme around the world, and, and our country is certainly suffering from a lot of discord, and, um, and there's been a real rise in anti-Semitism and in expressions of hatred here in our country and around the world, I think that gives even more importance to studying the Holocaust, human rights violations, and genocide, because Act 70 was really about incorporating the study of all of those into our um, classrooms in Pennsylvania. And let me just ask about that. I mean, Act 70 does not just focus on the Holocaust, uh, the uh, Hitler's uh, attempt to exterminate Jews in Europe in World War II. I mean, it, there are some modern-day examples, correct? Absolutely. One of the um, resources that I'm most responsible for here in Pennsylvania is Echoes and Reflections, and we've worked very closely in Pennsylvania providing this resource, and it was originally created as a resource that focused on the Holocaust, but they, it's a living, breathing online resource for educators, and they actually created a new set of lessons on teaching about genocides and um, through the use of visual history testimony. And I think it's very important that when teachers teach about Holocaust, they remember to also teach about genocide and to teach about human rights violations. And all of that was involved in the crafting of Act 70 and certainly in the work of the advisory committee. Let's take a phone call from Patrick in York. Patrick, you're on the air. Hi, thanks for taking my call. Yes, you're welcome. So um, the reason I wanted to call in, I just wanted to leave a comment. I was in high school um, about 17 years ago, and uh, 
at the time, I was in a German language class, and my class, um, we had a Holocaust survivor come in to speak to us, and we also took a field trip to the Holocaust Museum in D.C. I thought it strange at the time that only my German language class went. We didn't have any history classes going at the time. Um, my understanding is the school district I went to now does offer uh, trips to the Holocaust Museum through our history classes, and I suspect Act 70 had something to do with it. And so I just want to say I'm very thankful to see our youth being better educated about the Holocaust uh, than uh, my peers were when I was in high school. Hey, Patrick, thank you very much for your call. That is a little bit uh, strange that he, only the German language uh, uh, students were, were going to the Holocaust Museum. It would seem that that would be something that uh, all students would, would benefit from. Uh, Elaine, let me ask you, because, you know, he, he mentioned, Patrick mentioned that they had a Holocaust survivor come in and speak to his class. Let's face it, uh, going to the Holocaust Museum, hearing from a survivor... I think that probably has a, a huge impact on a lot of young people when they're learning about this, maybe even more so than just reading about it in a textbook or having a teacher teach a course about it. Your mother was a Holocaust survivor. Has she ever expressed her views on your role in uh, the Act 70 Advisory Committee and expanding the teaching of the Holocaust in Pennsylvania schools? Absolutely. And I, I just want to correct you, both of my parents were Holocaust survivors. Ah, okay. So it, it was a double impact. Um, my mother did speak to students, but there was something about what the caller said that I think ties into what we are talking about. When you bring a survivor to a classroom or when you take students to the museum, if you don't do the proper preparation beforehand and the proper debriefing afterwards, then you've done the equivalent of a drive-by. There's no context for what has uh, been heard or seen, and there's no deeper thought about what they have heard or seen. So for my mother or my father or any survivor who would come into a classroom, if there hadn't been some preparation for those students ahead of time explaining some of the history and some of the background, then for the students, this is just a one-time event that has no connection. They can't even ask an intelligent question unless they have some understanding and underpinning of what went on. Tell us about your parents. Uh, what were their experiences? Both of my parents were concentration camp survivors. Um, my mother spent two full years in Auschwitz-Birkenau, um, getting there at age 16 and being liberated when she was 18 years old. Um, my father had a slightly different experience. He spent a shorter amount of time, but in several different camps, including Matthausen in Austria. Um, they, were, they were both young. They lost pretty much all of their family. Um, and they met in a displaced persons camp after the war. They would not have met if it had uh, if the war had not occurred and the events had not fallen out the way they did. You know, this seems like such a an understated question, and uh, I don't quite know even know how to ask it, but about the impact that their experiences had on their lives. I mean, that probably the, those couple years that they spent in concentration camps and probably witnessed some of the, the horrors that uh, many of us know about today uh, had to have a, a, a great impact on their lives and how they, they, they value life and, and view life. Did they talk to you at all as a child about that? Absolutely. I was from a family where both parents spoke about their experiences. There are families where this there was silence around this topic, and I think coming from a family where the topic was open and available, perhaps at times too much, um, gave me a perspective that the individual story was valuable. So that when I was growing up, the Holocaust was not mentioned in school, but when I became a teacher, because that's what I did for most of my professional life, the Holocaust was part of what 
I would mention to my students and I would talk about individual stories, my parents' stories, the other relatives that had survived or friends of my parents, because those illustrated the kind of um, moral fiber that people um, evidenced during the Holocaust and the, um, the sort of moral victories, small victories that people had in sustaining themselves and others and in surviving. You mentioned that your mother has spoken to classes and that uh, you would teach your students about the Holocaust. I'm curious, what are uh, some of the questions that uh, students of today would would have for a Holocaust survivor or for a teacher that was teaching about the Holocaust? Well, one of the one of the questions teachers hear a lot is why didn't the Jews leave Europe? Why didn't the Jews run away? Why didn't the Jews fight back? There was a lot of, you know, I think borderline victim blaming that goes on sometimes as students ask these questions. And in some ways, that's why Holocaust education is so important, because what students need to understand is that there were no place for the Jews of Europe to go. Part of it was immigration policies in our country and certainly worldwide. Part of it was that Jews did leave Germany, but where they went, France, Romania, Czechoslovakia, Holland, like Anne Frank's family, the war then came to them. So there is a lot that students will ask. When students have a Holocaust survivor in the room, they are very interested in sort of their everyday life. And what's very interesting to me is that many times, particularly if we bring Holocaust survivors into Christian or Catholic schools, is the question that comes up almost every time, do you forgive the Nazis for what they did to you? And that's a very challenging question um, because Jewish people, Jewish survivors, do not forgive on behalf of any other person but themselves, and they can't forgive for what was done to all of the many who were murdered. And in some ways, that's what the students are, are asking. So that's another question I hear a lot. Elaine, are there other questions that you've heard students ask survivors? Well, I think for me, having my mother come to my classroom there were many personal questions that students asked. So there were broad questions about the conditions of the camp and um, questions about individual experience. But I remember that I had prepped my students ahead of time to um, make sure that they were asking appropriate questions. I taught high school, and one of my students asked my mother about sex in the camps. And, of course, my, I thought my mother would not know how to answer this, but she was pretty funny. She said, honey, we were so starved for food, we didn't even think about sex. And I thought that was the most wonderful answer because she turned it around on the students to make them understand that survival was what people were focused on and not this kind of um, individual pleasure of the moment that students were focused on. Huh. Randy, you had talked earlier about uh, no more, and that that is something that we have heard often since uh, the camps were liberated in 1945. And I, I don't know, it, it, it almost makes it sound like um, because so many people have that belief, no more, we will never allow this to happen again, that I don't know, it almost seems like a cliche that it hasn't had that impact because, as you suggested earlier, it has happened again, continues to happen again. I mean, you look at Syria, you look at a lot of other places around the world uh, that there's genocide. Just last week, we heard the word ethnic cleansing being used in relationship to uh, uh, the, the Bosnian War in the 1990s. So does no more have an impact? Did it have an impact? I, you know, my answer would, to that would be no. In some ways, it's been very disheartening. I remember when um, Bosnia was going on, and I, I just remember saying, what are we waiting for? What are we waiting for? And I want to say that when Rwanda was happening, I remember thinking, we're not stepping up 
because those people don't look like us. And I just had, you know, I have this aspiration, and I want to say I don't think you can do Holocaust education without both being very depressed and in some ways hopeful that the work you do is going to lead to change. My, you know, when we do Holocaust education in schools, when we bring a survivor, what I hear students say afterwards is, I'm going to think twice about the way I treat my fellow students. I'm going to, and they ask about what they can do with, to combat current-day genocides. One of the things I love best about the new resource in the ECHOES website is that in that teaching about genocide section, it's how to be an activist. There are links for students to actually step up, write their political leaders, um, just get involved in really trying to challenge this. What we want students to get out of this is that every person has a choice in how they can respond to bias and bigotry and hatred. Can you be a voice for good, or are you just going to watch evil happen and, and let it happen? Our hope is that good, sound Holocaust education gives students the grounding to want to use their voice to challenge the bias and bigotry that they see in their daily lives and to actually be active citizens fighting for what's right in our country and in our world. We only have about 30 seconds left, and I want to thank both of you for being with us today. 93%, that's certainly a success story compared to what it was just a few years ago. What about that other 7%? What has to happen to so that all schools are teaching about the Holocaust? And again, I only have about 30 seconds. Even with the 93%, we're not done. We think that quantity and quality are not the same thing. So we have much more that we would like to do with those who are, in fact, incorporating the lessons of the Holocaust and a whole lot more that we would like to do with those who haven't begun to do that yet. Randy Boyette is the Anti-Defamation League of Philadelphia's Associate Regional Director of Education. Elaine Colbert is a member of the Act 70 Advisory Committee. Ladies, thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you so Thank much. You. Coming up, uh, I want to tell you about a special event we have coming up. We have a Smart Talk road trip to Mount Hope Estate and Winery uh, in Mannheim. Actually, it's uh, located on Route 72 uh, between Mannheim and uh, Lebanon. Uh, but uh, we're going to be broadcasting from there on December 13th. You can see the broadcast by going to WITF slash events to RSVP. Smart Talk is produced by WITF as part of our mission to deliver relevant, high-quality programming. Support comes from Capital Blue Cross, which shares WITF's commitment to being a trusted resource in our communities. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by UPMC Pinnacle, who has offered transapical mitral valve repair procedures for more than three years and currently serves as a trial site for over 50 clinical trials. Information at upmcpinnacle.com slash myheart. 